Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hague Diplomacy Podcast. My name is Elon Madhavji, and I'll be your host. Well, we're back. We're back with culinary diplomacy through personal, popular, and institutional demand. I know we said this was going to be a two-part miniseries, but I guess we can consider today a surprise dessert, a third, a third course, if you will. I had a lot of fun doing episodes one and two, and if the numbers are to be trusted, so did you. It's actually some of our most popular material, if not our most popular. And some of the people that we engaged with afterwards on the topic someone actually reached out to us and that was the the good people of the asia europe meeting which is a multilateral forum supported by the eu and asean and they approached us on our great email address podcast hjd at gmail.com and they said hey do you guys want to do a third episode because it so happened that what we were talking about in episode one and two was actually what they were also talking about with respect to cultural exchange between Europe and Asia and building cultural ties. So for that and a few other reasons, we are here today. You'll remember before in episode one, we talked about how food can set the tone for meetings between world leaders and convey these subtle messages of of power and connection. And then for episode two, we we dropped a level deeper. Remember, we, we spoke about how Food is actually a tool to build and repair bridges between communities that have been split apart by crisis and conflict or even just cultural difference. But today we're going to depart from our usual approach to tackling issues from the diplomacy side. I know we are, after all, the Hague Diplomacy Podcast. So instead of that, we're going to try and understand culinary diplomacy from the kitchen. To be honest, you know, after having played with this topic for over a year now, I guess... I have felt, you know, as I've been researching and talking to people about it, and especially when I was approaching it for the third time, I felt we were doing the topic a disservice by just looking at it through that political, almost academic lens. Because, you know, we're talking about food, right? Like it's, it's just food. It's that thing that you and I eat every day. And I always got to this point when I was recording with previous guests that at some point in the conversation, someone says something along the lines of, well, you know, food just has this mysterious power over us. I mean, that's not a unique statement. You get similar sentiments when you're talking about music or sports, public diplomacy, and strategic communication. Whenever a medium like that is tactically used to communicate something, we always stop short at that point where we say it has influence, but we never understand how or why. And to be honest, we get away with leaving these massive questions untouched I think because we have a, a very intrinsic human empathy with a statement like that. I can tell you, yeah, food does have this power over us. And you can probably agree with me, even, even really feel that because in your experience, you've probably already felt that. So in a way that lets us hold that assumption without looking at it. There are probably those maybe in the more traditional mind or the, the academic world of diplomacy, maybe even practitioners who would say, you know what, we'll leave the how and the why to the psychologists or the sociologists or the ethnographers. That's not what we do. But at this point, 
I'm actually convinced that that type of thinking is a limitation. So today, instead of exploring diplomacy, we're going to explore food. And we're going to try and better understand the why and the how of how it moves us, how it influences us, especially in those moments when we're confronted with the unknown or the disagreeable and often just the outright foreign. So no matter who you are, diplomat or otherwise, listen closely for those moments where food becomes a facet of culture and even personal expression and how that transforms into a tool to drop one's defenses. Because if we do that job well today... I hope that you'll be able to walk away feeling confident enough to try and recreate those moments in your own life, be it international or domestic, professional or personal. Now, of course, I can't do that alone. So today we are joined by two very special, very talented, very interesting guests who are going to help us dive into the world of food, because after all, that's not our strong suit. It was never my calling. Um, I never thought I'll become a chef. I come from a very conservative Marwari Indian family, where, which is a business community of India. And I, what attracted me was not so much the food. The food had nothing to do at the beginning. It was the atmosphere, uh, the, uh, the fraternity, the brotherhood of chefs. Those are the voices of our chef guests who've dedicated their careers to transporting culture around the world through their food. The first voice you heard is of Chef Ritu Dalmia, one of India's most celebrated chefs. With acclaimed Indian restaurants in Italy and Italian restaurants in India, she's pushed the boundaries on culinary and cultural exchange from her position on this modern silk road of sorts that she's created. So much so, in fact, that she's been awarded the highest civilian honor in Italy and a Michelin star for one of her partnerships with Chef Viviana Varese. Then there's Chef Emmanuel Strobant of Belgium, whose creative passion for food allowed him to open his double Michelin starred restaurant Saint-Pierre in Singapore, where guests are exposed to fine modern French cuisine with an Asian edge. He's also most certainly the pioneer of Belgian mussels and beer in Singapore through his other restaurant as well. One look at any of his menus and you will see the cultural blend and spiritual aspect to his work that he also very much embodies. So let's get to know them a little better before learning how they use food to manipulate cultural lines of difference. For me, I mean, either it was to get married or join my family business. And I started working in our family business uh, when I was about 16, which was marble. And that took me to Italy very often, so-called work-related. And being in Italy, uh, eating the first spaghetti pomodoro that I ever ate, I told my family, I'm sorry, but in my last birth, I was definitely an Italian. I'm not an Indian. I'm not your daughter. You guys have either kidnapped me, adopted me, but I belong to this country. And I think that for me was really a breaking point. After that, in the next two years, three years from the age of 16 to 19, every time I was in Italy for business, I was doing less of learning about marble and cooking more with friends. And eating with Italians at their home, where they open their hearts, they open their tables, they open their kitchens to me. And that's where my learning for Italian food, my love for Italian food came in. And the minute I had a little bit of money on the side, I showed my middle finger to my father and said, this is it. I want to open an Italian restaurant. And this would have never happened in, for me if that connection with Italy never happened. If 
as I said, eating with friends at home, not in chef schools, not in catering colleges, to eat with grandmothers, to eat with mothers, to see this huge argument happening at lunchtime that what will be cooked for dinner, at dinner time, agreeing that whose pasta was better or who, that is something that really changed my way of thinking. And honestly, today, 32 years later, I think that really is something I'm very grateful for. And it happened because I was thrown into Italy to learn about marble business. I come from a humble background and I had to pay for my studies. So I was, when I was 15, 16, I dreamt to be, uh, I dreamt of criminology. That's what I wanted to do. And therefore I started law school. To pay for law school, I had to work. And I worked in a restaurant as a dishwasher. And I, what attracted me was not so much the food. The food had nothing to do at the beginning. It was the atmosphere, uh, like the fraternities, a brotherhood of chefs working, standing for each other, protecting each other. That was also fascinating because there was something which I liked a lot. It was a discipline. There was like a martial discipline in the kitchen. So food actually came after for me. But what drove me into the kitchen was that need for, I say, that much needed need for discipline. And, and simply, well, money. <laughs> and um, I love the ambience. I love the ambience. I love the atmosphere. Um, slowly, I dropped off uni and started to spend a bit more time in the kitchen. And that's pretty much what happened to me. As I moved on, uh, there was something which really fascinated me with food, is that we can do our job anywhere in the world, Kosovo, Milan, Mumbai, wherever we are, people are always inclined towards good food. And that was something which I find pretty much like a universal language. It didn't matter anymore if I speak English, Italian, uh, Czech, or Sikh, or, or whatever it would, because I have a tool with me which I could speak to everybody. Like I always said, I find myself, yes, I'm a businessman, I run restaurants, I run businesses, but I'm still an artist. And food, I find, goes beyond any kind of barrier people will put their mind uh, on, as I say, color of the skin or religious belief or wherever you're from. Now, unlike other artists, music, you might have, you know, I may not like Indian music or I may not like it, or I like it, depending, but there's always something personal about it. But when it comes to good food, good food, doesn't matter where it comes from. It can be a good food from South Africa or from wherever. Good food is somebody will never say, no, it's not good. I can say, look, I don't like Rembrandt. I prefer Picasso. I don't like ACDC. I prefer Beethoven. But good food is something which really unites unite us. And that goes beyond pretty much anything. As you can hear, it wasn't some traditional or even rational motivation that drew them to food. And this is where, once again, we see this mystical aspect of food. And I think that's why they both have very deeply personal motivations for entering the kitchen, despite the fact that they have completely different backgrounds. As I listen to them now, I'm actually even wondering if food or the culinary arts was maybe even addressing some sort of a personal need that their life at the time was not satisfying. And even just in my own relationship with this topic, I've noticed that anyone involved with the culinary side of culinary diplomacy has this immensely creative adventurous and emotional spirit about food and the way that it moves people and brings people together. 
and I guess it's, it's very artistic in that sense. They are artists after all. So there is this emotional aspect that touches them and that allows them to be themselves in that world. So I want to draw on their background again to complement this personal side with the inherently global nature of food and how it actually takes people to the streets and kitchens of places on the other side of the world. The reason that food does it so well, perhaps easier than movies, easier than music or reading in any other form, is that food is an empathetic experience. You can have the same, the exact same experience as someone else somewhere far away because you're eating the same food. I want to ask you to think about yourself and your own experience with eating. Have you ever had food that's made you want to explore another part of the world or travel somewhere? Has it brought you closer to someone you're sharing it with at a table who is from that culture? You'll remember that in the previous episodes when we talked about Thailand and their their global food campaign, where they basically exponentially exploded the number of Thai restaurants, ingredients, and trained chefs around the world, and directly as a result in the decades after that, The way that we think about Thailand is now hand-in-hand with food. They set the trail for Korea and Peru to follow suit. Peru was a country that was never associated with food and now inherently is. Korea saw this and said, hey, well, we're trying to differentiate ourselves and show that we're different than the other countries that we're perhaps always bundled in the same basket with. How can we do that? Food. So it's this mix of global and emotional and personal that we see combining here. When we talked about that mystical power, when Sam Chapel Sokol talked about it and he used it as an example of something that brings people together, what we're realizing now is that it starts with exposure to the unknown. That is the first step. When I turned 40 and I thought I had learned everything that there was to know about Italian food, boredom crept in. And then I did about a two year trip in Southeast Asia to learn about Asian food. And the funny thing is, I was going all over, whether it was Asia, whether it was Europe, to learn different cuisines. But one cuisine I consciously neglected was Indian food. And the reality is because I was too scared of it. I was too scared that Italian food is about good ingredients. It's about cooking a la minute. The ingredients talk for themselves. You can't really go wrong. I always say I'm a fake chef. Whereas Indian food, The nuances of spices are so complicated. I'm still learning. I'm still learning because for me, what always surprised me was how Indian food in restaurants is so different from Indian food at home. And for me, I don't like food, Indian food in the restaurants. And reality is uh, with a name like Madhavji, I'm sure you also have some Indian background there, that food cooked at home in India, and this is the only one of the few countries where you find this difference. In Italy, you eat out four times a week because what you eat outside is something you would also cook at home, but you're just too lazy to do it. For me, it was a beginning of learning about Indian food. And then a completely different explosion happened. I wanted to now try Italian elements in my Indian food. I wanted to try Indian elements in my Italian food without really bastardizing the food per se. So just to give you an example, I have Indian restaurants in Milan and I have Italian restaurants in India. Very recently, I was in uh, Sicily where they have this amazing vegetable called cucuzza. 
Now, Kukutsa is our Indian green squash, Loki. All right. And it was the first time I saw Loki being used in a pasta. I said, hang on, let me try it out. And it was amazing. It was beautiful. In Milan, I'm doing some amazing pakoras. But I'm doing it with zucchini flour because it's in season right now. I'm doing it with artichokes because it's in season right now. So I think this is something which has come to me very recently in the last 10 years where I'm not afraid anymore, where I'm not afraid that if I mix the two cultures, I'm going to create a war or I'm going to create a complete disaster. And it's been really something which has been amazing. And if you look at it, if you think about it, at the end, the root of all food, there is some common elements. When you go again to Sarzana, for example, they have this amazing dish called Farinata di Cechi, which is basically a very thin pancake made out of chickpea flour. And you eat it with a little bit of olive oil and a piece of bread. When we were growing up, we used to eat something called Besan Kachilla which is again a very thin pancake made with chickpea flour. And we used to eat it between two slices of English bread. Okay, the difference was the bread was much nicer in Sarzana. But I think somewhere it is also connected when we talk about culture and food. I studied Ayurveda for a very short time, about 15 years ago, not because I was interested, but because I was very unwell. And one of the things that I learned there was that you never mix seafood and dairy product. And in any Indian cuisine, normally you don't see it. But when you go to Italy, you will never see Parmesan or cream or butter being added in a dish of fish or in a dish of prawns or seafood, any of it. So somewhere, whether it's Europe, whether it's India, whether it's Southeast Asia, there are some fundamental principles of food connected to our body, connected to our mind, which is common. Of course, it has evolved over the time with your environment because environment plays a very important role. And today there's really nothing called Italian or Asian or Belgian or uh, Levantine food. At the end, I think food in some ways has also become very global because when you taste, when you see other ingredients, when you taste different cuisine, Somewhere you want to experiment with it. And what you come up with is maybe your own dish, but there is a touch of globalization and I welcome it. I love it. So if you had asked me the same question 15 years ago, I would have said, oh no, I'm a purist. I don't mix cultures. I don't mix food. I don't do any of it. I'm sorry. Never believe when I say things like that. Julie noted, Julie noted. I yep. think, I mean, well, to be honest, I find it very interesting, Ashley, that in the beginning, perhaps in parallel with your personal development, it, it, it took a, if I may say, it, perhaps an element of, of bravery or exploration. Uh, I know you mentioned you got bored, right? So uh, there are perhaps uh, certain pillars of, of traditional cooking and our traditional understanding of food um, that do require an element of force to, to break down, to, to break out of. And I mean, I understand it, eh? like, uh, um, as you said, uh, there is a Indian influence in my heritage, of course. So I was visiting my grandmother just last month. And uh, whenever I do that, I, I, I 
do my job to stand next to her and, and try to understand as best as possible in the kitchen what I can do to improve my my cooking. And yeah, the way she speaks about it, it's 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 she's not just adding an ingredient or a spice. No, she's like teaching me how to ride a bike. She's teaching me how to walk, you know? Um, so these are very uh, ingrained uh, personal lessons that are passed down generation to generation. So yes, of course, it, it does take a, a lot to break wisdom. that. It's wisdom. It's really wisdom, these things. And you're very lucky that your grandma's there to teach you that. And one of my biggest worries is that no one cooks anymore. All these millennials, none of them cook anymore. And I'm so worried that very soon, all this wisdom will be lost. What are we going to do about it? Well, I hope, I hope today we're inspiring a few at the very, very least. <laughs> Emmanuel, I have a, a, just to, to press you a little bit on, on kind of what we're talking about. I know that as someone hailing from, from Belgium, uh, I was reading that also in your time in, in Singapore, you've done also a lot to bring um, a little bit of yourself with you to Singapore in many ways. Has your initiative to transport Belgian foods and traditions and ways of eating to a part of the world where uh, perhaps it hasn't really been, been seen that, that much, do I understand that correctly? Is that sort of a, a way that you have tried to combine these two uh, different and conflicting worlds through food? I started a restaurant called Brussels Sprouts in 2012, if I remember correctly. Brussels Sprouts was simply a Belgian restaurant. We thought, well, we're in Asia. What do Asians like to eat? Asians like seafood and beer. And I'm thinking, well, I'm from Belgium. What do we do? Mussels and beer. So why don't we try to bring seafood and beer to people who like seafood and beer? And that's how it started. It was reasonably successful. We did fairly well with that. And then it drives us to think about different things. So we were doing traditional Belgian uh, recipes, but we are in Asia. So we started to do laksa mussels. We did the goa mussel. We did all kind of chili crab mussel. We did all kind of recipes because, you know, it's quite a versatile element or ingredient to play with. It doesn't need to be excellent with, I don't know, beer or white wine. It can go all kind of, of ways. So that's, that's how we looked at it. We looked at it and I saw that maybe there is something interesting about education here for younger people. Going back to Ritu's point, she was, you mentioned to, that you grew up in Italy and for you, Italian food, you're growing comparison with Italian food, uh, Indian food. When I was a kid back in Belgium, my dad took me to a Chinese restaurant and we ate what I thought was a Peking duck. So for me, Peking duck was the experience I had back home, which is like a kind of pancake with a breast of duck, which has been cooked Western style. It has nothing to do with what I know today as Peking duck. So when I arrived here in, in Asia and said, people say, oh, let me take you to Peking duck. I went there with, you know, my, my own knowledge of what Peking duck should be. And I realized, oh my God, this is not Peking duck. This is not what I thought it was. Why do I bring this? It's because one of the things we are bringing with food and culture is what it should truly be. Um, when I see chefs in my kitchen talking, I got touch upon for Ritu, <laughs> people say, oh, spaghetti bolognese in Italy, blah, 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 blah. But there's no such a thing as spaghetti bolognese in Italy. And we have to teach those guys, hey, you know, it's, yeah, there's, a, there's a city called Bologna. There is something called pasta al ragu or whatever what to call it. 
but there is no such thing as spaghetti bolognese. Like there is no such thing as Singapore noodles. I lived four years in Australia. I had Singapore noodles all over me. And when I came to Singapore, I said, well, Singapore noodles. There's no Singapore noodles. So what I'm trying to say here is that what we can bring in in our different culture is really an educational aspect of what we do. And when you can exchange that with people, it starts to be, forget about the diplomacy, forget about where I come from. It's just an exchange of ideas and taste mine. Oh, no, I taste yours. Oh, mine is better. That's what you were saying earlier on, saying, oh, you know, uh, comparing at the table the, the, the recipes from my grandmother who had the best pasta. And that's exactly that. I think food brings love. And that is something really uh, unique in its sense, because if you have, you need to have a little bit of an open mind, okay? We cannot say, okay, no, that's my mom's curry and only her curry is good, the rest, forget it. But if you can move on to, to, to opening a bit, say, hey, you know, that neighbor's curry is not bad after all, we could really go a long way in collaboration in between different things. And I can't remember my 35 years of, as a professional chef, having had an ever, I had many arguments with a lot of people, but I can't remember having had an argument with a chef saying, my recipe is better than yours, or how your mother does better than my mother, whatever. It's always been about learning something new and taking that back with me, and maybe I can implement that new thing into my own food, and that my own food becomes richer because of you. And that is diplomacy. Feel free to stay tuned and continue listening to Stirring the Cultural Pot, an extended episode by the Hague Diplomacy Podcast.